From the Medical Republic, I'm Francis Wilkins. This is The Tea Room. The COVID-19 pandemic will prove to have been a watershed moment in the careers of many health professionals, not just doctors, nurses, and other healthcare staff, but also epidemiologists, researchers, ministers, health department secretaries, and so on. State chief health officers have become household names. You could even purchase a Brett Sutton Duna cover, if that's your thing. Of course, at the helm of the RACGP during this time has been today's guest, adjunct professor Karen Price. And while the college will announce her successor on Monday, she still has a few weeks in the job yet. Karen, welcome to the Tea Room, and thanks for joining us for a chat. No problem, Francis. So I guess the thing I'd like to ask you first, we talked about the pandemic, is how has the pandemic changed Australian general practice? Well, the pandemic has changed just about everything. It's plunged the world into enormous disruption. So I think in the isolation that we had, especially down here in Melbourne, but most many places, we suddenly discovered the importance of each other and our relationships. But equally, we also encountered the othering effect of the ideology and some pernicious politics in health. You know, we found the heart of humanity. We found it beautiful. We found it tragic. We found it flawed, fearsome and dangerous. So I think how we change general practice is, is probably reflects the, the whole world, really. In terms of general practice, we quickly pivoted to telehealth. We, we quickly discovered the importance of general practice and of generalism of those relationships which are so often invisible while we get on with what's called the economy. But the economy is made of people. And that's really what we discovered is how important people are. And, you know, they must be healthy. And that means well-being as well. It doesn't mean, you know, a functioning blood pressure and a good cholesterol. It means well-being, well-rested, healthy people. And I think we need to look at health in all its very broad contexts. And that is absolutely the province of generalism. So we've been able to illustrate how important that was. It was you know, it, it was GPs who spoke the language of culturally and linguistically diverse communities who actually, you know, really helped in the vaccination rollout. It was that local knowledge, not a top-down command, but a local knowledge that enabled the movement of Australia towards the very high vaccination rates we've got now. So, so definitely some positives there, but also some negatives. And we know there are also problems that go way beyond just COVID that stem back years. Crisis in primary care has reached a tipping point. Do you think the public now finally understands why reform is necessary? I think in the majority, yes, our own patients, absolutely. But at the same time, this is a time of disruption. So, you know, the powers that be, whoever they are, in whatever areas they are, are rumbling because funding is always attached to power and sadly narratives can be created around that, especially from powerful people and the public can be swayed by a narrative. But I think in individually our patients, yes, and we've got to keep talking about what we do because most people do not understand generalism. They like a easy understanding of health, which is, you know, pictured in front of a hospital having something stitched up, but that's not health. Health is a holistic approach, as I mentioned in the first part. You know, it is the whole well-being of a whole individual and the individual situated in a in a community and in a society. And uh, when we're talking about money, as you sort of hinted at earlier and interests, it very much gets down to the government at the end of the day. Do you believe the college is powerful enough to be an effective advocate when it comes to dealing with government? Look, I think yes, because we are the largest medical college, we're the largest rural college, we're the largest general practice medical organisation. I know that there's this chat amongst the members around paid for lobbying but you know I consider that quite a slippery slope towards you know almost you know we don't want to say bribe but it's almost in that kind of box and who do we pay do we pay every political party and that's 
also fraught given there are some challenging ideologies that are around. So it's a real ethical slippery slope for a medical profession and that's what we are. We need to be independent and we need to be not tied into that very commercialised idea of what power is. And I really think that in general our politics would be much better if that paid for lobbying and access is is made more transparent and I really hope that we get a corruption commission to look at that. I, I, I worry that the challenge in lobbying, paid for lobbying, is that it will reinforce privilege and that's a problem for the vulnerable even in our cohort. So our college is very large and powerful and it's I know from conversations with those up in Canberra that we are very powerful and it, you know if the college isn't coming along with something, the government's got something to worry about. And when it comes to internal politics and, and internal image, if you like, there is good news for the college. I mean, I've been given to understand that the college has turned around its net promoter score dramatically. That, of course, is the likelihood that someone would recommend something to others. It's gone apparently from around minus 50 to plus 35 over four years. So what has happened, do you think, to the membership's perception of the college to cause that? I think there's been a better dialogue and certainly in my two years, I've absolutely been unrelenting in forcing the college in its entirety to think about its mission statement, which is its members, to enable the members to deliver high quality health care. I've hopefully role modelled a vision of professionalism that we need and I hope that's been apparent. I think that also the use of social media, you know, the GPs Down Under group and all the other groups, there's lots of other groups where many senior people who've been involved in the college and understand the relationship with government, which is always challenging, that people are actually saying, well, actually, this is legislation. That's not the college. The college is there as a large advisory body. Nobody else does legislation except the government. And, you know, understanding that governance of the country, the governance of medical politics, I think has really helped people understand the importance of having a strong organisation like the colleges and like the RACGP in there in the room, fighting for them and, you know, not even using the word fighting. I think that's sometimes an unfortunate word, but having dialogue with the government in an evidence-based way to really influence and inform. When it comes to the membership, I know the people who are vying for the next president have said that engagement is absolutely key. And you mentioned engagement. Do you think that has then improved significantly over that time? Well, I hope so. There's, you know, I, I've always been very open to the critics. I don't mean the the trolls because that's slightly different. <laughs> you just want to sling insults. Okay, good. But if you're actually having a, a, a discussion and a dialogue and saying why you've been, you know, challenged by the college, I think that's important for us to listen to. And I, again, encourage the management and operation to listen to that voice because that's how we improve. It's really gold. Any large company would know that feedback is gold. And if we don't listen to that and improve, then we've got to we've got to really point back to our mission, which is for members to enable them to do their work. And if we're not helping them, then we're not following our mission. And I'm sure something that the trolls would not take issue with is your stance on bulk billing. You vehemently, you could say, told members they would benefit from moving away from bulk billing to mixed or private billing. What is, however, the best business model for general practice? Is there a best one? What a great question. Look, the best model is the one that allows you to practice high-quality healthcare in a professional way to the most vulnerable people in your practice. And that's what my statement was always about. It's about professionalism. Now, we've got to remember that Medicare is the patient's funding and the government is not funding the most vulnerable, and that's a government issue. It's not a medical practice issue. And unfortunately, the, you know, it's been very convenient to point to doctors for this, but it's actually a government failing that they haven't funded the most vulnerable in our community to have adequate 
high quality healthcare. And sadly, as we know with economics, that the way things are funded will change some of the behaviour. So, you know, we've unfortunately seen in some cases people capitalising on a high volume throughput, which sometimes is necessary. And so they can still change their practice to, you know, try and manage only one problem per consult, but it's very clunky. And yet there are others who take advantage of that. And, you know, that's because the system is not rewarding professional high quality care. And that is a responsibility of the government to fund the most vulnerable of our community. And I think that is on the table at the moment, something I'm pointing to. No government around the world has yet really fully addressed the inverse care law. We've got the NHS, which is choked, and we've got, you know, the American health system, which is not available to the most vulnerable. So if Australia can get to be a clever country, which I hope, we might look at that and have bespoke funding models for those areas where there has been, you know, general practice failure. And if we think that we can replace general practice, then we're on a fool's errand because there is no other profession that does the differential diagnosis and the management and care coordination like general practice does. And it takes 12 years to just begin to understand what that means. And it probably takes another 20 years to really master it. So good luck trying to task substitute that out. And it's a very simple, a good, simple and wrong idea. So I'm very passionate about that, making sure we have a system that can deliver healthcare for everybody in Australia. And that, after all, is the mission of the college and it's the mission of our profession. GP funding really is the holy grail, isn't it? So look, in that vein, let me ask you about capitation. Where does the college stand on capitation? And where do you personally stand on capitation? And is capitation something that is inevitable? Because some GPs are saying that, that it's coming. Well, interesting you've asked me that question without notice. (laughs) So (laughs) tell me, what do you define by capitation? Because I would say that Medicare has been capped and not moved for the last 10 years. So capitation means, you know, really you've got an inability to alter your fees. And we've kind of had that. We've got to that crisis. So the college is looking at, as I said at the previous question, a bespoke model which suits high quality professional care, whatever that is. My concern is by altering some of the funding models, if we're not careful, this is the implementation, we're going to have a third party in the room directing the consultation, and that concerns me. So we we must get quality improvement within the funding models right. It can't be a coercive model, such as we've seen with the KPIs in the QOF frameworks in the UK, because that destroyed the profession. We need to look at quality improvement attached to any funding model. All funding will come with a contract. When you have fee-for-service, you've got a risk that you don't look after the most vulnerable, and that needs to be looked at. When you have a pooled funding model, you need to have an idea of what that means, such as providing areas in, in areas of low socioeconomic need subsidies, such as the ARCHO models where you can you know, utilise allied health and expand your practice to meet the needs of the population. These are important things. It really will be the multi-source funding, which is not capitation, And the college is not in favour of capitation, not in favour of having the medical profession coerced or managed by health bureaucrats who really don't understand each individual consultation. And we can't have unelected people deciding what happens in a consultation room. That would be a destruction of the profession. So the the tenure plan very much emphasises the importance of voluntary patient enrolment. Is that where you align? Do Do you think that's the approach that we should be taking? Well, again, what do you mean by voluntary patient enrolment? I see the dialogues happening about what it might mean. I see the very uninformed people suggesting that that's capitation. It's not. There are different models of voluntary patient enrolment. It's really embedding continuity of care and enshrining the general practitioner as the care coordinator because they're the diagnostician. 
you know, as I said, general practice and general practitioners are absolutely skilled in providing a differential diagnosis across broad patient narratives and biographies of illness that they bring. So if that person is not in that system and centralised, then we have a risk of fragmentation. And the voluntary patient enrolment is voluntary. It's uh, continuing with the FIFA service and the actual details of how that will work are not worked out. Our position is that we should really enhance the SIPs and the PIPs. We must obviously reward practice owners for implementing changes, but we must also reward the contracting doctors who are performing the activities. But we've got to watch the payroll tax. We've got to watch all of the very challenging ways that can be implemented. And if we only pay for enrolment, then that's all we'll get. So, you know, we're in favour of actually funding the doctors who are doing the work, including the practice owners, and doing that in an equitable way. We already have PIPs and SIPs, and we just need to enhance that kind of model and provide a concierge model for those people who might want it, and that might mean particularly those with chronic health conditions. Can I turn now to regulation? Many of the GPs I've spoken to have said they're unhappy with the approach to regulation taken specifically by APRA and the PSR. What are your thoughts on that? Look, this needs to be looked at with fearsome scrutiny, <laughs> which we are doing. We are vigorously discussing with the PSR. We have a new temporary head who's been an AMA GP for a long time, who very much understands general practice. We've been talking with APRA and we've been talking with the Department of Health. So there are three players in that regulatory framework. We, we need regulation for sure, because I don't think any GP would sanction low quality practice or criminal practice or any other egregious activity. But there are many, many doctors who are caught up in a rather clunky and frankly dangerous to general practitioners health process. We need to make this a more educative process. We have moved the dial on that. We're having constant dialogue. We've pushed back on many things that GPs didn't see happen, <laughs> so which we can't talk about, which is, you know, great. You take it on trust. We're looking at the Section 92, which is a problematic clause, which means people can finish things, but they have to admit a degree of guilt. So that's that's a problematic process. And we're looking at that very closely in a legal way. It is probably a bit unfamiliar to doctors because it's basically a legal and regulatory process. Now, the PSR is one thing we've got. I think also we need to look at the Department of Health algorithms. When they say that these are the highest, you know, for instance, care plan producers, and they want to go and look at them because they've got a statistical cutoff, they're only looking at the top providers. And as I've pointed out, why aren't you looking at the bottom, those who aren't doing any care plans? I mean, if you're really talking about quality, then that's what you should be doing, the outliers. But if they're only looking at the top people, then they're only really looking at cost control. So, you know, we've got to, we've got to keep arm wrestling this and keep getting into a position of trust where we can be a trusted partner between government regulation and our members so that we can basically make sure that the bad eggs are being caught and that the, the, the good eggs, if you like, are, are not being weighed down. So, you know, sometimes as you've seen from lots of the dialogue again in, in your journal and in social media, that it's often the clunkiness of Medicare. How many new item numbers did we have in the last little iteration? I mean, it's it's hard to keep up with all of that. And then, you, as you know, law spins on a word or a comma and that's really a bit too much for most GPs and particularly their front desk staff who manage the billings and our practice managers. It's become almost unusable because, again, the Medicare items have been used as a way of trying to work out what general practice does, and that will fail. Now, you don't hand over the uh, keys to the office just yet, but looking back, what would you say your greatest accomplishments are as RACGP president? 
Oh, well, I think that's probably for other people to to really decide. I would say the self-belief of a profession, the the talking that we've got, we don't have unity and we'll never have unity and that's not a bad thing, but we will have dialogue and we'll have hopefully professional dialogue and we'll understand that we have a complex and a, and a, and a complexity system. If you understand systems theory, it's okay to have very dipole apart practices and GP because that provides diversity to our population. I hope that I've given the GPs of Australia some courage and that we are able to stare down our critics. Look, leading through a global pandemic has been an incredible experience, historical experience really, and working in that for the good of the country has been, I think, quite meaningful. But I think my legacy will be what people decide. But also, I think the, the talk about the lack of funding, the call that I made about bulk billing has been obviously taken up by the profession and by everybody, and I'm, I'm glad of that. I also think that the ability to have dialogue and the social media aspect of that, my love of technology and my call for general practitioners to understand where technology is taking us, I hope that's remembered because there's a lot more to go in that part of our world too. I can't resist asking you, what, what's next for Karen Price? <laughs> well, my patients are saying they want me back, so that's nice. Obviously, I've got some academics still to do. I've got GPs down under to work with as well, all the things I've neglected. I've got lots of doctor's appointments lined up. I've got my dog. And and so I've also got an exercise physiologist because I'm sure I've got sarcopenia from sitting on Zoom for a whole year. And I think I'll have a business card, as I've jokingly said, that I'm a gun for hire as a public nuisance if people want me. So I think, you know, I'll see what, what occurs and what happens and make sure it aligns with my values at so always been how I've worked. I'd like to say, though, additionally, that kudos to all of my colleagues who are listening, but also to my inner crew who've uh, supported me. I had people lined up to be able to tell me I was being, I won't say the, the swear word that I said, but if I was being an idiot, then they were allowed to ring me up and tell me and uh, all those supporters as well. Um, and you know, I think you, you find out the character of people in a crisis, Francis, and whilst many were found wanting, many many GPs have shone magnificently and, and that really gives me hope for the future. So I will go on being a hopeful person and hopefully being a constructive person in my profession. Well, we certainly like, to use your words, public nuisances here because of the combined interest with analysis based on experience. So I, I can assure you we'll be hassling you in the not too distant future, RACGB president or not. That'll be fun. <laughs> That was adjunct professor Karen Price talking to the Tea Room. And don't forget, the next president will be announced on Monday, the 12th of September. If you enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favorite podcast player. Leave us a review if you like. And if you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at francis at medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Room is a production by the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.